What an exciting day to, to launch into a new preaching series. We don't do this often, do we? So this is a good day. This is for me, I was thinking about it last night, this for me is like waking up on the morning where you're about to leave on a vacation, where you're, you're just so excited because you're starting to ask questions, starting to wonder, well, okay, uh, how is this going to play out? What, what is this journey that we're going on? What's that going to look like? And in the end, what will we learn from it? And uh, will we be changed by the experience of going through this new preaching series? And as I'm sitting here this morning, the fun thing is, is I don't have the answers to those questions. That will be completely up to the Lord. But that too is part of what makes it exciting, right? To know that the Lord can do as he pleases because he's sovereign. And wherever he takes us in this series, whatever he does in our lives, we know that it will be good, that it will be beneficial to us and glorifying to him. Amen. So I hope you guys are excited. Maybe you're not as excited as me, but I hope you'll get there because this is going to be really awesome. I saw this, this uh, interesting question on a Christian blog this week. It got my mind spinning, and so I thought I would pose it to you guys. You don't have to answer out loud. Just think in your hearts. If you're going to be stuck on that proverbial deserted island for the rest of your life with only one book of the Bible that you could have for the rest of your life, which book would you choose? We need the Jeopardy music now. Which book would you choose? Now, I had a hard time because immediately I thought of three, right? And, and I'm not sure which ones. My first inclination was to say, well, a gospel. Probably John, maybe Matthew, because I'd want to have a record of the life and death and resurrection of Christ, right? And then I thought, oh, but Romans, right? It's so systematic and it'd be so nice to have that with us. And then I started thinking about the answer that the author on this blog gave. He said the Psalms. And that got my mind spinning. And I, the more I thought about it, the more I said, well, maybe he's right. Considering the content of the Psalms, how it focuses on the human experience and worship, maybe that's the best answer. But I'll leave that up to each one of you guys. What has your experience been with the Psalms? What has your experience been? I, I think about Christians in the church today, and there is a wide spectrum uh, of people who have had various levels of engagement with the Psalms. Some people absolutely adore the Psalms. It is their go-to book uh, for guidance, for encouragement, and, and they just love it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who say, you know what? The Psalms are just hard. They're hard to understand. I have a hard time reading them. And so they don't go there very often at all. So on a morning like this one, as we're launching into a series, this might be a good time, at least in your head, give yourself a grade. You know, it can be A through F or it can be 1 through 10, whatever. On, on how much you love and appreciate the Psalms. Just give yourself a grade. And then at the end of the series, I'll try to remember to ask you if, if you've grown in that at all. And of course, that's my hope that you, that you certainly will. As you can see on the screen, the tagline for this series is a guide to the heart of God and man. And that is exactly where we're going, exactly what we're hoping for, to know God more intimately and to know ourselves more deeply. Calvin called that the double knowledge, right? To know God and to know ourselves. Both of those things are absolutely essential in the Christian life. And what's so interesting about the Psalms is how God, first of all, speaks to us through them, while at the same time, we use the Psalms to speak to Him in prayer and in both individual and corporate worship, which makes the Psalms very, very unique. Now, Normally, I would say grab your Bibles, open to a particular text, but this morning we're doing something unusual. You don't have to. You can keep your eyes on the screen. I got a lot of slides. We're going to move really quickly through this, so I'm going to be clicking like crazy. 
You don't have to worry about your Bibles today. Just look on the screen. Lots of scripture will be up there for you. But trust me. So this morning is, is just an introduction to the book, an overview of the book of Psalms. But trust me, next Sunday, we will dive into the text with both feet. Can you be patient? Awesome. Good. All right. number of things we need to understand about the Psalms before we just dive in. And the first one is this. It's very obvious. The Psalms were written as poetry. Poetry. Now, I know as soon as I say the word poetry, some of you who don't consider yourself, air quotes, the creative types, and I include myself in that, that causes you to go, oh, poetry? Really? Um, you probably, if you're not one of those creative types, if you're like me, you probably would say about poetry, it's anywhere from boring to intimidating. Okay? And that's, and that's sort of me. But if you're apprehensive, I want to assure you that you're going to find the Psalms to be deeply theological and incredibly practical. And so even if you're not a fan of poetry, trust me, you're going to benefit immensely from studying this book. Now, as I say that, here's something you have to know right out of the gate. The Psalms are not poetry as we tend to think of poetry. They're not the same as modern-day poetry. They are born out of a non-Western, ancient, agricultural context. They're not born out of a Starbucks in Portland or Seattle. Okay, So they're not going to rhyme. They're not going to be these cutesy little things that, that rhyme together. We don't look for them to rhyme. Rather than rhyming with words, Hebrew poetry connects ideas through a particular literary device called parallelism. And we're going to get a little bit technical with that this morning because Hebrew parallelism is the dominant feature all the way through all 150 psalms. So you'll hear a lot about it. Now here's how, here's how parallelism works. When the psalmist first makes a statement, you will see him follow up that statement with a corresponding line right? that does one of a number of things. It reinforces that first truth, it expands it, it explains it, or it contrasts with it. Now, as I say that, you're like, that sounds like a, a very textbook definition. Let me give you some, some examples of this. There are five general categories of parallelism. So here we go. There it is. The first one is called synonymous parallelism. And that, uh, of course, is, means exactly what that word synonymous implies. You probably know what that word means, right? It's when you have two words that are nearly identical in meaning. So, for example, this morning, are we sitting in a multi-purpose room or are we sitting in an auditorium? Right. Okay. In our cultural context, those, that would not have made any sense to an ancient Israelite. But in our context, those two words are basically synonymous. They mean the same thing. And we see this all the time in the Psalms where the author's first and second lines mean essentially the same thing. They're just phrased slightly different. So, from Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Basically the same thing, right? So the second line just reinforces the first line, phrasing it slightly differently, but reinforcing how important this truth is, that for those who trust in God, the scriptures shine a light on how we should walk in his ways. Okay, synonymous parallelism. The second type is called synthetic Parallelism, And that idea comes from the word synthesis, where you take a basic concept and then you build on it. Okay, So the second line in a psalm takes a first statement and develops the thought further. Okay, So Psalm 95, 
Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the, before the Lord, our maker. So the first line does what? Exhorts us to worship, but then the second line develops the thought. Don't just worship anyone. Worship who? The Lord, your creator. It builds on it. Another example from Psalm 28. The Lord is their strength. He is a saving defense to his anointed. How is the Lord the strength of his people? He's a saving defense. It builds on it, right? It explains it. He is a refuge. So the psalmist isn't really saying anything new. He's repeating a similar statement, but adding information that builds up the thought. Make sense? Synthetic parallelism. The third one is called climactic parallelism, meaning the second line in a psalm brings the first line to its completion. It finishes the thought. That's why the word is climactic. Example from Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Now, if we stop there, we'd have an incomplete thought, right? Ascribe what to the Lord? And then the psalmist finishes the thought in line two. Ascribe to the Lord what? Glory and strength. So it finishes the thought. Here's another good example from Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. So can we call upon him in any way we want? No, the, the psalmist finishes the thought to all who call upon him in truth. It completes the thought. Right? So in order to call upon the Lord, you have to know the truth about who he is, right? Climactic parallelism. By the way, so we're a little technical here today. You're gonna get a lot of information today. Trust me, this is just a first hearing. You're, we're gonna reinforce these ideas throughout the series, so don't feel overwhelmed. Just sort of let it sink in a little bit this morning. The next one is called emblematic parallelism. Fourth kind of parallelism. An emblem is a sign or a symbol that represents something else. And in the Psalms, we'll often see the author present an image or a metaphor, right? Very descriptive words, again, coming out of that agricultural context, context of the ancient world. But the next line then clarifies what he's pointing to. So the most famous Psalm of all, Psalm 23, says, The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? If you didn't see the second line, you might wonder. Well, God isn't a physical shepherd, and I know I'm not an actual sheep, so what is going on here? What does the symbol mean? Well, the psalmist continues, I shall not want. Oh, okay, so that's what that means. That's what the first line means, that, that God is going to care for me and provide for me as a member of his flock. Make sense? So it's emblematic. Another famous one, as the deer pants for the water brook, right? So my soul pants for you, O God. Again, I am not a literal thirsty deer. <laughs> My wife doesn't think so, at least, right? Not a thirsty deer. So it's a word picture. But then the second line finishes the thought. I ought to thirst in my soul to know God as if it's essential to my life, as essential as water that I drink. That's what's going on there. It's emblematic. You with me so far? Last type, antithetical. Parallelism, And that means exactly what you might expect. When something is antithetical, it's the complete what? Opposite. So the second line is going to be a contrast with the first line. So Psalm 1-6, which we'll look at next week, is very important. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist wants you to see two opposing choices here, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. Or Psalm 37, very similar. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, 
but the righteous is gracious and gives. A very clear contrast between two paths. The psalmist does this quite often. So we're going to see these parallelisms show up all over the place in our series, and I'll try to remind you and point them out. The other thing you'll notice in the Psalms, and and you'll see this in your English Bibles, is that the translation committees who have provided you with the translation have given you a helpful tool called a strophe. Sometimes it's called a stanza. Okay, I'll give you actually a, a, a picture. See the spaces or the line breaks between Psalm 2 here, right? Think of them as paragraphs that are built into the text. They weren't there in the original, but the translation committees let you know that the psalmist is moving on to a new set of parallel ideas. Okay, sort of, you see this in the New Testament writings, right, where you see breaks with little titles. Okay, those are not inspired by God. They're put in by editors, but they're important for helping us to, uh, to understand the text. And so the book of Psalms is, is sort of broken down by book and then chapter and then strophe and then line. Okay, Hebrew poetry. It's, it, it may, that may have sounded more technical than it really is, but we'll, we'll keep working through it together. Okay, second big thought about Psalms, and this is, this is for Grant and Gabe and the worship team. Not only are the Psalms written for, as poetry, they're written as what? Songs, right? They're written for music. They're written as songs. Woo, we love to sing songs, don't we? Like three people just, yeah. I'm gonna let that sink in there. Thank you. It's easy to forget that Psalms is a hymnal, right? How many of you guys grew up in a church where you sat in pews and on the back of the bench there was that shelf with hymnals or hymn books in them? Raise your hand. Okay, so you guys know what a hymnal is. The Psalms is Israel's hymn book. Think of it in those terms. So every Psalm, regardless of what type of Psalm it is, is a poetic song that exalts and glorifies Yahweh the God of Israel. In fact, in the Hebrew Tanakh, the title of the Psalms is the word for songs of praise. And then the Greek Septuagint picked that up and called it psalmoi, and that's how we get our term psalms today. Now, here's the thing. The melodies of the ancient songs are lost to us in the dust of time. We don't know what they sounded like, but in his sovereign brilliance, God has preserved the lyrics inspired lyrics so that each generation can then take these words from the Lord and can compose music to go with them, which is really, really a special thing, right? So, and, and imagine if we had to use the melodies from that time, it would just sound so awkward and weird to us, but brilliant people like Grant can actually write music and, and accompany the Psalms, which is fantastic. In fact, this morning we've already sang a song. We sang Psalm 150 the very first song we sang this morning. So just how musical are the psalms? Completely. In 55 different psalms, we see a reference to a choir director. 55. 11 times we read a reference to stringed instruments. And then we see in other places, trumpets and harps and lyres and wind and pipe instruments, even cymbals, which means, yes, hold on to your chair, drums are approved by the Bible. Yes, right, Grant? Drums? Amen. Good. All right. So listen, God loves to hear his people sing his praises. Let me say it again. God loves his people, if you count yourself among them, 
He wants to hear you sing his praises. So he sovereignly produced the Psalms as a significant part of his inspired canon. And here's the thing. When you look back at the history of God's people, when their hearts are right before him, guess what they do? They sing. They sing. When the Lord brought his people out of captivity in Egypt and delivered them from Pharaoh's army, Exodus 15:1 says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. It goes on to describe that song. They sang in praises to God. When God gave Israel a great victory over the Canaanites in Judges 5, it says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day. And that entire chapter is this particular song. When David brought up the Ark of the Covenant into his city, the city of David, Jerusalem, 1 Chronicles 15 says the Levites were present to lead in singing. It says all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud sounding what? Drums. With harps and lyres. That's the Jeff No translation. Drums. Right? You get it though, right? The days of Hezekiah when temple worship was restored in Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 29 says King Hezekiah, the king himself, and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of who? David and Asaph the seer, who we'll talk about in just a second. And there are many more citations I could give you from the Old Testament. So serious question. Have you ever wondered why do we come here on Sundays and sing? We don't do it just because it's a really nice thing to do or to warm our voices up or to like work ourselves up into some emotional state. It's a biblical idea. When the hearts of God's people are right before him, we sing. We're not trying to work ourselves up into some emotional state. We really aren't. It's biblical. We sing with the same heart motivation that the people of God in Scripture sang with because he deserves our worship because of his goodness and his grace in our lives, because we have a passion to know him and abide with him and to bring glory to him through our lives. Remember in the upper room, when Jesus and his uh, disciples, before they went out to the Mount of Olives, you know, Judas has done his thing. And Mark tells us, what did they do before they left? They sang a hymn. Sang a hymn. Probably a psalm. Most likely a psalm. When Paul and Silas were jailed in Philippi, fresh from a beating, with their feet in the stocks, what did they do? They sang praises to the Lord. Again, no doubt from the Psalms. In the year 112, think about this, 112, the first generation of believers in the church after the apostles, a man named Pliny the Younger wrote a letter to the Roman emperor describing these weird people, Christians, who live in his area. He's a governor of a region. They live in my area, and they become problematic because they will not bow down to you as the emperor. And among other things, and we have this beautifully preserved letter, among other things, Pliny says, on a stated day, they are accustomed to meet before daybreak. Don't ever claim or cry about 1015. Before daybreak, to sing a hymn among themselves to Christ as though he were a God. Written in the year 112. Even the great martyrs of the faith, Jan Hus, for example, in Bohemia, sang praises to the Lord as they were being burned at the stake. So when we sing here together on a Sunday morning, whether we're singing a psalm or some other words from Scripture or 
or a song that is just sound in theology, we are walking in the footsteps of those who've gone before us. And this is important, friends. I know not everybody loves singing, but we need to grow in this. It's important. And the Psalms are going to teach us about this. Martin Luther It was very clear to him. I know he was a musical guy. He actually said this, he who despises music does not please me. (laughs) Music is a gift of God, not a gift of men. After theology, I accord to music the highest place and the greatest honor. So we can't dismiss this and just say, yeah, singing's not my thing. We really can't dismiss it. If you don't like singing with the saints in this era, I got bad news for you. You're really not going to like the next era. Because the book of Revelation says in three different places that we as a people will be singing songs to the Lamb who was slain for all eternity. So my advice is strive. If this is a struggle for you, and it was for me for many years, strive to please God in the area of singing. Ask Him to help you to grow in this. It'll be good practice for eternity. Amen? Poetry and singing. All right. I'm going to rattle off a whole bunch of key facts now about psalms. And these are, to me, so interesting. Again, if, you've, if you have a hierarchy of books that you love in the Bible and psalms is nowhere near the top, I want you to think about some of these things. It is the longest book in the entire Bible by every metric. Number of chapters, how many? 150. Number of verses, 2,461 verses. And the total word count in English. 42,704. It has the single longest chapter in the whole Bible. Most of us know Psalm 119. It has 176 verses. That third bullet point I find, find very interesting. It's the most frequently quoted Old Testament book by the New Testament authors. 79 direct citations in the New Testament from the Psalms and more than 300 allusions to concepts that are included in the collection of the Psalms. That should tell us, this was the Psalms were a very influential collection of writings for the disciples, but also for Jesus. We know for a fact that Jesus loved the Psalms because he cites them, he quotes them himself, including several while on the cross. So Jesus and the apostles appreciated the Psalms. Not surprisingly, which book is found most often among the Dead Sea Scrolls, our oldest collection that we have of Old Testament? Psalms. Why? Because we know from the writings of Josephus that the people who lived at Qumran, the Essenes, they were highly liturgical people, devoted to prayer and to worship. So let's talk about how the book is, itself is, is structured because uh, this, is, this can be, the Psalms, when we open them up, they can be sort of confusing, they can be overwhelming, but you need to know that the, that the book of Psalms is actually a compilation of five individual collections. You may or may not have known this. Five individual collections make up the 150 psalms. You see it there. Book 1 is 1 to 41. Book 2 is 42 to 72. Book 3, 73 to 89. Book 4, 90 to 106. And book 5, 107 to 50. Now, why five? Well, there are some people that say, and, and this is, again, Jewish tradition, that the five books of the psalms mirror the five books of the Torah. It's a really hard case to make to try to draw parallels between them, but that's sort of the Jewish tradition. But more importantly, the divisions themselves are not man-made. They're actually in the text. The divisions are in the text itself. The last line 
in the last psalm of each of those sections has a statement or doxology that tells you we've wrapped up this collection. And I'll just read them to you really quick and you'll, you'll hear a theme. In book one, Psalm 41, the last line is, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Collection over. The second one is a little bit strange. Psalm 72 says this, very bluntly, the prayers of David and the son of Je David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Oh, thank you. Super helpful for theologians. Like, I really appreciate that statement. Book three, Psalm 89, just simply says, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. Book four, Psalm 106 says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting, and let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. Love it, right? So we do that sometimes here. We're like, all the people said amen. Well, it's right there in the Psalms. Book five, Psalm, actually all of Psalm 150 really is a, a capper to the collection. But the last statement says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. What's the Psalms about? Praise, right? Over and over again. Now, beyond identifying the five books, if you sit down to try to figure out how the Psalms are organized, you are going to be frustrated because every time you start to see a pattern, it throws you a curveball. They are not organized chronologically. They are not organized by theme. They're not lumped together by author. They haven't been placed in any order based on how popular they were or how long they are or how short they are. It's really, really hard. Now, there's some theories out there you can read books about, about why they're organized the way, are, the way they are, but nobody really knows for sure. It's just what God has given us. Now, historically, we know the Psalms span across almost a 1,000 years of Israel's history, although the vast majority of them were written in a particular time during the days of David and Solomon, right, in the 10th century BC. The oldest psalm, you know, I was, oh, oh, I had it. I had it on the screen and I forgot to click. Sorry. If you want to take a, so I know some of you guys take pictures, which is really smart. Look, Tammy, well done. Look at that on cue. Um, I had to squeeze the timeline in, right? So the span of the psalms, right? The oldest psalm is Psalm 90, written by Moses, which would have been around 1450 B.C. The latest, Psalm 146 to 150, probably, I say probably because it's not in the text, put together, written down by Ezra the scribe. And that would have been after Judah came back from the exile in Babylon, somewhere around the year 500 B.C. And then, of course, we have David and Solomon in the middle. So that's basically the span of the, of the Psalms. According to Jewish tradition, it was Ezra who, by the way, Ezra is my nominee for the most underrated saint in the entire Bible. First of all, read his book. See what he's done in Jewish history. He's an amazing man. It was probably him in the 5th century B.C. who, after generations of compiling the Psalms, he put them together in this order, and it's because of Ezra what we have in our Bibles today. But here's what's so encouraging to me. The oldest full collection that we have of the Psalms, again, comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, and when you look at them, guess what? Those same five book divisions are there, and the authorship is also rooted in the text itself. So God has divinely provided what you have in your Bibles at stretching back to the oldest extant copies that we have of the book of Psalms. So be confident in the text that you have. Now, what about authorship? Obviously, David plays a huge role here. 73 times David is specifically mentioned 
as the author of a psalm. And then we know that he's the author of at least two more because of citations in the New Testament, where there are psalms, additional psalms that are credited to David. So 75 total, which means David is the psalmist in exactly one half of the collection. Then we have this man named Asaph, who was a musician. He was the choir director at the time that David was king, which makes him very important. He's a Levite. He wrote 12 psalms. Then we have a group of men known as the sons of Korah. We don't know a lot about them other than they were also musicians and Levites, but in later generations after Asaph. Solomon himself is credited with two of the psalms. A man named Ethan the Ezraite squeaked in there with one. <laughs> Nicely done, Ethan. <laughs> right? Like, there's a guy I want to meet in heaven. How did you pull that off, man? <laughs> that was a beauty. And that leaves 49 psalms that are anonymous that we're just not sure. Although, again, some, a lot of people are convinced that the last five psalms were, were written down by Ezra to close the collection. Okay, so again, I'm giving you a whole bunch of information today. We'll, we'll keep coming back to it to remind you of this. In terms of categories, it's really important for you to understand the types of psalms that we're going to be looking at. So the most obvious type is called the hymns of praise. Right? We see them all over the place. We're familiar with these. Psalm 9, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. Our assembly, I will praise you. Right. Oftentimes then the hymns of praise are connected to thanksgiving psalms. They often go together. Psalm 7, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 100, we know this one. Enter his gates with what? Thanksgiving in his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. We love these. We love these psalms, don't we? The third one, not as much. But you might be surprised to know that the most psalms, the highest number of psalms in terms of category, are lament psalms. Lament. The idea of groaning and crying out to God in the midst of pain and difficulty. And we see laments both from individuals and their personal lives, but we also see people lamenting in the midst of a national crisis as Israel is faced with some type of trial. Psalm 3, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God, David says. Psalm 44, this is a, some, sometimes the language in the lament songs can take, us, can take us aback, right? The psalmist says in 44, arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Anybody ever feel like that? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? I find it so interesting that modern day people have a tendency to read the Psalms or to even look back on any ancient history and forget that these were real people that had real emotions, who were going through very real things. The ancients were people that dreamed about, about life and they they sang songs and they rejoiced at times and they laughed, but then they also sinned and they confessed and then they mourned over their circumstances. Listen, you think your life is hard in modern day America? Man, live in ancient Israel. They mourned over the circumstances of their lives. 
in terms of safety and protection and, and needing the harvest to come through where we might starve to death. And so they lamented often. The lament songs, psalms are filled with some of the rawest emotion that you will find in the entire Bible. And that makes, us, makes it instructive for us because we struggle, right? We go through things. And then speaking of struggles, the fourth type is penitential or repentance psalms where the psalmist expresses sorrow over sin, over spiritual failure, and cries out to God for forgiveness and restoration. And historically, both Israel and the church used the penitential psalms as a central part of liturgy in the worship service. So that before we came and sang songs, before we came and heard the word preached, we first repented before the Lord. We confessed our sin to him. When we think of repentance, our minds mostly go to Psalm 51, right? Because it's so raw and it's so real. When David, this is the, the darkest chapter of David's life, and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you, Lord, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What a great pattern for repentance for us today. Now, the most difficult and controversial type of psalms are called imprecatory. Sometimes we, uh, we like these a little bit too much. It's the calling down of God's righteous anger upon your enemies. <laughs> Psalm 5 says, There is no truth in their mouth, speaking about the surrounding nations. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Listen now. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Whew. Let them fall by their own counsel. Psalm 79 Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So it's important to understand, and I know we'll get into this more, but imprecatory psalms were not written out of a, a pure desire for personal vengeance because that would be sin, right? We're told to allow God to pour out vengeance, not us. What the psalmist is doing is directing his prayer to God about God's enemies and saying, Lord, stand up and fight for your righteous justice. Show yourself to be true. So it's not personal vengeance. It's, it's, it's God, you pour out your vengeance on your enemies. Next type of psalm is what we call wisdom psalms. The type of psalm that speaks about, this is so great, how life works, right, under the sun and how life works under the sovereign hand of God. Very important, right? Very practical. The opening verses of Psalm 1, which we'll get to next week, is a perfect example of this. Listen to what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but, contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That is wisdom. Practical, how do you live life? Then there's a number of psalms that are called royal psalms, and all that means is that we have a discussion of the king of Israel with some foreshadowings of what, what's to come on the Davidic throne, and then connected to that, lastly, we have messianic psalms, and we love these, don't we? 
where we have numerous lines within an individual poem that foreshadow something about the identity of the Messiah, something about his life. Psalm 16 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Psalm 22, famous, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 41, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Judas Iscariot. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, which we hear again echoed in Hebrews. Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone from 1 Peter. So all kinds of different types of Psalms. We'll go back through this. So what are we going to see in terms of themes real real quickly? Let me give you what, what, what in, in teaching Old Testament survey at Masters, uh, I always, always used to try to give the students just a one-sentence theme for each book. And my theme for the book of Psalms is the expression of praise from God's people through the entire range of human experience. Okay? And that last part is critical to understand. The Psalms reveal to us the full range of human emotions. Anything that you go through, anything that you feel, you're going to find somewhere in the book of Psalms. Trouble, fear, guilt, despair, abandonment, betrayal, but also triumph and joy and contentment and delight in God. Every experience from the cradle to the grave, you will find it in the book of Psalms. In other words, experiences and emotions just like ours. That's what makes it so practical. Calvin, Calvin wrote a commentary on the Psalms. Did you know that? Right? We don't often think of Calvin as being a touchy-feely guy institutes guy but he wrote a commentary on the psalms he says this i've been accustomed to call this book an anatomy of all parts of the soul for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not represented here as in a mirror calvin said it so the psalms flow out of real life situations the thing here's the thing the authors of the psalms didn't sit down on just some beautiful day without a care in the world and say i'm going to write down an insightful poem they, flew, they, they flowed out of real life, out of trial and difficulty and all kinds of things. John Piper once said, the Psalms are often wet with the tears and the blood of the writer. And you feel that as you study these poems deeply. So that's a lot of information this morning. But don't worry, the Lord willing, we're going to keep going through this stuff and I'll keep reminding of you, reminding these things, uh, reminding you of these things. What I want to wrap up with this morning is just a few final thoughts about how we as a congregation can get the most out of this study. And, and it flows again from this, this theme, which I'll put back on the screen here. The expression of praise from God's people through the entire range of human experience. All of the Psalms are designed to teach us how to worship. And by that, I don't mean just singing songs on Sunday morning. That's the first thing our minds go to, but that is not even close to the full range of what worship means. Right? Worship is a way of life for the true believer. It's not an event, it's a way of life. It's the presenting of your mind, your body, and your soul to Christ as a living sacrifice. It's fleshed out in an abiding relationship with God where you dwell with Him in a daily, moment-by-moment walk together down the path of life. It's a life of worship. It's a lifestyle. 
It's who we are as believers. We worship. And as we each walk down that path, we open up our hearts to God with Christ as our great high priest. And this is where the Psalms become so useful to us and so instructive. So what we're going to see in this series, again, is how open and raw the psalmists are in their emotions and expressions, the full range of human experience. And listen, guys, this is a part of what true worship is. It's heart's total honesty before God. And we don't often like that. Again, if, if you're not on the sort of feel, touchy-feely side of the spectrum, you're like, ah, I don't know. Total honesty before God? As if we can hide things from him. That always makes me smile. But a lot of us don't want to be that open. Don't want to be that honest. Our heart's total honesty before God. Because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And we can trust him because of his love for us. We can trust him with even the ugliest parts of our heart and our soul. Because we all have, you think of the heart in terms of chambers. And there's, there's some deep places that we're not really comfortable with. All of us. There's some parts that, man, I just, I don't like to talk about that part. God knows about it. He knows about it. As a loving father, the type of worship, worshiper that God wants is one who is totally honest before him. That opens up the heart, even those ugly parts, and says, Lord, you know me. And I'm here to worship you. I'm here to abide with you. And I submit to you and ask that you would clean those parts out because I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. I want to abide with you in all things, in every part of my life. So what we can do with the Psalms is read them devotionally. We can turn the Psalms into our own prayers. Dave's already done that this morning. When he prayed pastorally this morning, he was praying the Psalms. It's one of the beauties of this collection. There's a 150 to choose from. And if you say to me, Jeff, I am struggling with doubt right now, I can point you to two or three psalms. Turn them into prayers for yourself. Read them, pray them devotionally. This was a common practice in the early church. They would pray the psalms as part of their liturgy when they gathered on Sunday mornings. Again, Dave did that this morning. That's our intention as we keep going through this series. We're going to be praying the psalms together and reinforcing the truths that are included in them. So here's my closing challenge for us. Three potential areas of deficiency in our worship that if we're willing, the book of Psalms will help us to correct and to grow in. If we're willing, that's the key, right? Because the Spirit, the Spirit wants to do a work in our lives. Will we cooperate? Are we willing? I'm going to give you three. This is, Adam, you'll love this. Alliteration's coming. He gets very excited about this. Three really scary words. Experience. Experience. Listen, in a church like ours, we sometimes have a hard time with this. We highly value the written word, and that is an awesome thing. The word of God is at the center of everything. But what we, the error that we can fall into is over-intellectualizing everything, making it all about the mind, but not the heart and not the experience. We don't want to be afraid of experience because that's what the Psalms is. We want to balance our walk with God. One of the things that makes Israel's worship so unique is how aware they were of God's presence in their midst and how aware they were that God was working in everything around them, everything they saw every day. And sometimes we, living in the modern time, especially if we're more bent towards the intellectual, 
we can forget that. We can divide the sacred and the secular and say, well, I'll put God back on when I go to church or when I go to Bible study, but now this is me time. So we struggle with the idea of experience. We want to start seeing God in every daily moment that we walk with him. That's truly what it means to abide, to make our dwelling with him, open our hearts and share all things with him, even our experiences. Second word, expression. Again, in a church like ours, we sometimes have a hard time expressing our adoration for the Lord. What does it mean to adore God? Does that idea even strike your heart? We get, we get a little stunted about this, okay? And again, I'm not talking about just singing. It's more than that, right? I'm talking about expressing ourselves to the Lord, before the Lord, in every area of our life, our thought life, our prayer life, right? How we use our bodies. And yes, in singing too. And if the idea of expressing yourself more openly and honestly scares you a bit, I get it. I get it, but this is where the Psalms are going to take us. So get ready. It's good. And then last, maybe the biggest and scariest E is emotions. Emotions. Friends, there is no doubt that poetry and music touch the heart. They're designed to do that. Right? You can talk to Grant or composer or anybody else that composes music. He'll tell you, I'm trying to move people. The Psalms were designed to touch our emotions. It's okay. It doesn't mean that we don't think. It doesn't mean that the word isn't still central. But our emotions are involved as well. Poetry and music, it's a special use of language. It communicates things more intensely than just ordinary language. So what the psalmists are going to try to do is seek to bring you and I, the reader, into his particular experience, right? And then for us to empathize with what he's going through, to enter into that experience and feel what he was feeling. And then to say, you know what? I feel that way sometimes. Huh. It's okay. It means we should be feeling things when we study the text of God's word. So, I, so I'm just going to say, at the end of this whole thing, if all we've done is coldly analyze the Psalms in a very technical way, we've missed the big idea. It's more than that. So it's helpful at a time like this as we look at these words, experience, expression, emotions. Ask yourself some hard questions. Do some self-examination. Ask yourself, is my prayer life right now sufficiently vibrant? Is my prayer life sufficiently vibrant today? Am I prone to compartmentalize my relationship with God? Do I op openly open up to hon with honesty before the Lord? Is that, is that a normal practice of my devotional life? To say, Lord, I'm going to crack open my heart. Here I am. It's not all pretty, but I'm here before you. Is that a normal part of your devotional life? What's my level of emotion and expression as I confess sin? To God, do I do it? Do I confess sin in a heartfelt way or is it just mechanical? Overall, would I describe my walk with him as abiding and worshipful? Do we have feelings of awestruck wonder when we come into his presence? Do we have moments of joyful praise in our lives where we just stop and we praise the Lord? It doesn't have to be out loud, but at least in our heart, we, we just day to day in mo multiple moments, we just stop and praise the Lord for something. The Psalms are going to help us with these things. 
We have to strive to tap into them so that we don't become like, like, like the, the people that Jesus rebuked in his day. Remember he said, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I mean, that never be said of any of us that our hearts are just distant from God. Oh yeah, we do the mechanical thing. We say all the right things. We walk through all the right forms, but it's not here. The Psalms are gonna help us with this. So, have I sufficiently scared you? I told the elders that was going to be my goal this morning. Just to shake you up a little bit. Don't fear. This study of the Psalms is going to be amazing. We'll do it together. We'll walk through it together. I, I said to the guys this last week, Thursday night at our elder meeting, I said, I think the timing of this series for our church where we're at is absolutely perfect to grow us in these areas. And I'm excited to see what God's going to do, not just for you all, but for me, because I need this too. So I hope you'll join me. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, submit ourselves to you this morning, even as we, we talk about things that in the modern day can be challenging for us, and especially in a church like ours can be, can be puzzling to us to, to feel these things, to to experience and to emote. And, and these are scary concepts for some of us. It is for me, Lord. I just want to ask God that you would do a great work in this church through this study as we go through it. And Lord, you are sovereign. You're going to take us where you want us to go and you're going to do the work that you have decreed that you will do. And we just want to bow before you. We just want to praise your name. We just want to submit to whatever work you want to do in us. So Lord, if there are, if there are things in our hearts right now, we put up defenses. I pray God that you would break those down. Pray that your spirit would encourage us and drive us to your word. Drive us Lord to the text of the Psalms. Drive us into these very real emotions that the ancients experienced. And Lord, help us to turn those things into great moments of prayer and worship. Lord, do a work through us. We trust you in that. We want to praise you with every breath that we have this morning. Even as we begin to sing again, Lord, let that echo in our hearts and our minds. Let us praise you in spirit and truth. Be with us now. Amen.